Jesus, come. As we spend our last time together at this round of this seminar, would you bring the message home? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent our entire week talking about it's all about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you know will transform what you do. I hope that's stuck in your mind for the rest of your life. We've talked about the three parts of the relationship ingredients, the three-legged stool. Bible for the purpose of knowing Jesus, not doctrinal accuracy. Prayer for the purpose of communication, two-way communication with Jesus, not just the 911 prayer list. Sharing, which is the natural fruit of a tree that's healthy and rooted by the rivers of water. The only good fruit is natural fruit, and God wants us to bear natural fruit. I've challenged you to begin each day with time with Jesus, and at the close of that time with Jesus, ask him, Lord, would you please open my eyes today to specific opportunities you arrange where I can make a difference in people's lives for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom, and give me a nudge when it happens so I don't miss it. And I hope that as a result of these things, your church will enter a a new and even stronger era of living for and witnessing for Jesus. We spent a lot of time redefining things. Last Sabbath afternoon, we had a fairly heavy topic on looking at sin from a relational definition as opposed to a behavioral definition. We noted that the first sin was not a bad deed. It was a broken relationship with the tree that led to some horrendous deeds. We discovered that broken relationship, broken abiding, broken trust led to broken deeds. It's according to relationship that sin is best defined, not according to behavior. Sin at its core is a broken relationship with God, which results in sinning, which is bad deeds. We heard that sin is lawlessness, but we noted that the fulfilling of the law is not behavior, it's relationship and trust. The great commandment is not behave. The great commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. We learned that love is the fulfillment of the law, and that whatever is not out of trust or faith is sin. As long as we have a behavioral definition of sin, we have to have a behavioral definition of salvation. When we can see that sin is primarily a relational issue, we can have a relational definition of sin. When we see that bad behavior is the byproduct of broken relationship, we actually have the hope of having restored behavior through restored relationship. We looked at justification. We did probably the least amount of redefining here. Justification is renewed abiding, connecting back up with God, breaking the broken trust, breaking the breakdown at the tree of knowledge of good and evil and moving back into relationship with God. Forgiveness for all of our brokenness. Justification is essentially restoration of relationship, a choice to begin abiding again. It's more than just forgiveness. It's a reconnection with the one who is life. Therefore, when we have Jesus... We have life. And that includes the guarantee that the past is wiped clean by his death and our eternal future is guaranteed by his life. 
God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Eternal life comes packaged in a person. How do you get a person? By relationship. The one who has the Son has life. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you realize that that verse does not tell us that Jesus forgives our sins? In fact, I will tell you, I don't believe Jesus forgives sin. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so he could forgive sinners. Notice it doesn't say he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. It says he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We are forgiven. Sin is handled at the cross so that we are forgiven. Justification. We spent considerable time redefining sanctification. As growth in relationship, we work on trust, deeper abiding, daily abiding. And that will result in restored behavior. Growth focuses on relationship, constancy of surrender. Sanctification is by faith alone as much as is justification. I have a work to do, but the work is relationally focused, not behaviorally focused. God will transform me if I sit at his feet. This is the work of God that we what? Trust, believe in him whom he has sent. This is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The only command here is to what? Abide. We are not commanded to bear fruit. We're guaranteed fruit if we abide. We're not commanded to get pruned. We're guaranteed pruning, sins off, if we're bearing fruit, which is guaranteed if we abide. A fruit tree does not bear fruit in order to be a fruit tree. A fruit tree bears fruit because it is a fruit tree. And finally, we haven't talked about it that much, but glorification is simply face-to-face, forever abiding with Jesus. The relationship restored to its Edenic original. Jesus is preparing abiding places for those who abide with him now. That was our focus this morning. So we've discussed how to keep this experience going. Number one, your personal relationship with Jesus, getting up every morning and spending time with him. Number two, this morning we talked about those small groups, the importance of having a small group of fellow believers, abiders, that you abide with in Christ. And then the third level is the big group here at church. And if the first is solid and the second is enriching it, the level of coming to church here will be a whole new experience. This afternoon, we want to ask a final question. Is Jesus enough? It sounds blasphemous to even ask the question or come out with anything less than a hearty yes, but I've discovered that we have a gazillion little subtle ways that we say no. A few years ago, I preached a series on the Gospel of John that took about four years and four months, 140 sermons. We had a wonderful time. My church puts up with really long series. 
Maybe that's why I've been there 22 years. I'm trying to get a series finished. And as we're working through the Gospel of John, one Sabbath I I got to John 16. That passage that says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, the one called to be alongside, will not come. If I depart, I'll send him. And when he has come, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because they're not trusting in me. Of righteousness, because I go off to my Father and you no longer are perceiving me. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And I remembered hearing some things in the past on this. And when I got into studying this passage, because every week my sermon was just the next few verses. And I remember I got all excited. Because once again I saw that here the Holy Spirit is the one defining sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, if I told you next week, you're the preacher here. Pastor's going to be over in Mount Pleasant. You're preaching. And I said, your verse is John 16, 7 to 11. And it makes a perfect three-point sermon outline. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I want you to preach on that. And if you think about it for a moment, that would be very easy to do the following. Let's see. If I'm going to talk about sin, well, what is sin? Transgression of the law. You know, sin is all the things we're supposed to stop doing. And it would be easy to have the first section of your sermon say, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of the things we need to drop out of our lives. Righteousness. Those are all the things we're supposed to start doing. So the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of all the things we should be doing. So the Spirit comes to convict us of what we need to stop doing and what we need to start doing. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of judgment that we better get with it because the judgment's coming. We're going to stand before the judgment seat. Our life will come in review. How will you stand when your name comes up for the last time? How many times have I heard that as an Adventist? But when I read what Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to do, it's none of that. Notice what it says. Of sin, because you're not trusting. It doesn't say a thing about behavior. It talks about relationship. Whatever's not of trust is sin. The biggest sin we have is anything we do outside of trust with God, even if it's good behavior. Good behavior on our own is a life of sin. Really, sin has nothing to do with behavior. Sin has to do with who you're trusting, and that'll affect your behavior. Secondly, of righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Jesus is righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is the standard of righteousness. And if we don't have our eyes on him, even though we can't see him, but we can see him through the Holy Spirit, we'll end up with way too low of a standard of righteousness. We'll bring righteousness right down to the standard of good behavior, which is way too low. The behaviorists are known to accuse us of having too low of a standard. Just read your Bible and keep on sinning. Sorry. I think the behaviorist has too low of a standard. That righteousness is simply not doing bad things. Wrong. Righteousness is not sin management. Righteousness is becoming like Jesus. And that has to be from the inside out. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. 
And so it is with us. And then the third one, the judgment. It doesn't say anything about you and I standing before Christ in the judgment scene. It says the ruler of this world has been judged. Good news. We're going to get set free from the tyranny of the evil one. Even though he's a wounded foe, he's not dead yet, but he is defeated. And there's no way he can win. And even if he kills us, we're still going to win. Because in the end, he is judged, he is cast out, Jesus is Lord, and we will reign with him. Notice there's no fear motivation in what the Holy Spirit says here about the judgment. It's all good news. So I was excited about that. I get to preach twice at my church, first service and second service. So first service, it's a group that's, it looks kind of like this group. It's kind of spread out around the room. Our room holds about 300, you know, and there are about 100 there. Second service will be pretty full. So I get to practice in first service. So I let them have it in first service, and oh, that's a good sermon. I love that. And I come to second service, and I looked out, and here about a quarter of the way back are two rows of very serious, devout young adults. And I knew a little bit about where they were going to school and what they were being taught, and I knew I was in trouble. But I let them have it anyway. I preached it with all I had. And sure enough, when I got to the door, two very serious, very earnest young men, good hearts, tried to engage me in dialogue while I'm going... Nice to see you. Happy Sabbath. Thanks for coming. And they're trying to talk to me. And what it turned out is they were unhappy about what I had not said. Now, that's a tough thing to do to a preacher because I already preached too long. How much do you want me to say? We can't say everything in one sermon. But the interesting thing is they were upset that I had not pointed out sin as bad behavior, righteousness as good behavior, and the judgment, we're going to stand before the judgment seat. And we finally just agreed to disagree. And as I thought about it, I realized they were upset with me that I had not preached what was not in the text. Did you get that? I had not preached what was not in the text. Now, maybe it's in some other text, but it's not in this one. And I realized, I don't think they would agree with this conclusion, but I still think I'm right. In a way, they were saying, Jesus is not quite enough. It's not quite enough to just trust him. It's not quite enough to just see him. It's not quite enough to just rest in Jesus kicking out the bad guy. Somehow, I got to put some more into that. They were essentially saying, working on relationship with Jesus is not enough. Sanctification is not by faith alone. I have to work on stopping sinning. I got to work on right behavior, and I need to be motivated by the fear of the judgment. But it's not in the text. The whole Christian world has a way of saying Jesus is not enough. It's called the doctrine of hell. If you respond yes to Jesus, he'll take you to a beautiful heavenly resort where you'll live in a mansion on the heavenly Riviera forever and ever. Amen. 
But if you say no to Jesus, he'll consign you to the agonies of rolling in the flames without any hope of respite forever and ever. Amen. And we Adventists believe that when you die, you're dead, and hell will burn the wicked up and put them out of their misery, not put them into misery. And I've actually heard other Christians say, you're lowering the motivation to heaven. I actually heard someone say, well, then why would we even want to go to heaven? You mean heaven is just a fire escape? And a lot of us do have the idea, and Satan keeps drumming it into us, you know, heaven is kind of a boring place where you won't really have any fun. You'll kind of walk around in a white robe with a golden band around your head and try to keep that thing clean forever and ever, and you'll stand by beautiful places always and have just a really boring life. Satan wants us to think that. If you're going to have fun, you better have it now. And heaven is better than hell, okay? What is that saying? Jesus isn't quite enough. I have to say, folks, scaring the hell out of someone will never get them into heaven. Jesus warns of the consequences of rejection of him because he is life. And if you reject life, where are you going to end up? But the inference is that the draw of Jesus alone is not enough. You somehow have to have the kicker of fear in there to get people to move. I disagree. I believe love is enough. I believe Jesus is enough. I believe perfect love casts out all fear. As I've mentioned before, in the fall of 1974, when I went to Pacific Union College as a freshman, Morris Venden started a Wednesday night prayer meeting series called Sanctification is by Faith Alone. And he'd give a little vignette on it about 10 or 20 minutes in prayer meeting. And then there were two aisles at the Pacific Union College Church with a microphone at the front of each one and people would line up about 20 deep and everyone who came to the microphone said, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we be doing? And what were they saying? Jesus is not quite enough. Simply seeking restored relationship with Jesus isn't enough. Back in the late 1970s, when there was a big hubbub over what we understood about salvation in the Adventist church, an Anglican pastor named Jeffrey Paxton wrote a book. It started out that he had an acquaintance who was an Adventist, and one day he asked that Adventist what we believed about salvation. They gave him an answer that he filed away. A few weeks later, he ran into another Adventist, asked him the same question, got a little different answer, filed it away. And he ended up making a project out of it where he interviewed church members and pastors, administrators, editors, authors, educators, and professors. And he seemed to always get a little different answer about what we believe about salvation. And so he ended up writing a book called The Shaking of Adventism. I have a copy in my library. I heard this man speak once back in about 1978 at Pacific Union College when he came through. Our church leadership wasn't real excited about this book. Notice... The Shaking of Adventism by Jeffrey J. Paxton, a documented account of the crisis among Adventists over the doctrine of justification by faith. I don't agree with his subtitle because the crisis was about the doctrine of sanctification by faith, not really justification by faith. But he wrote that we were all confused and shook up about what we believed on salvation, and it did rock our church at that time. Shortly after this book came out, there was an old Adventist preacher by the name of H.M.S. Richard Sr., you know, the great speaker for Voice of Prophecy, 
he was in his mid-80s, and he came to Pacific Union College one weekend to visit. Now, Elder Richards was known for short and simple answers. Me, I give all my answers long. He gave his answers short. Elder Richards was Morris Venden's spiritual hero, just as Morris Venden is my spiritual hero, a mentor and a shaper of thought. I actually heard HMS Richards preach once while I was at Pacific Union College, and I could still preach you the whole sermon right now. It was that simple, it was that clear, it was that profound. So, Paxson's book had just come out, Old Elder Richards is on the campus, and one of the theology professors interviewed Elder Richards for the Sabbath school program. And he said to Elder Richards, he said, a man named Jeffrey Paxton wrote a book recently. He says Adventists are all shook up about what they believe. So, Elder Richards, in a few words, what is the Adventist message? Now, Richards was famous, as I said, for boiling things down to a few words. Once he was asked by a lady, should women wear makeup? His answer, if the barn needs painting, paint it. One young man approached him and said, should I become a pastor? He said, not if you can get out of it. And oh, that is so true. It's a calling, not a job. Thirty years ago, he was asked if we should ordain women to the pastoral ministry. And he said, as soon as we run out of men, and we have. I'm not sure what he meant by that, but that was his answer. One time, Morris Venden as a young pastor, was just discovering these things of righteousness by faith that we're talking about. And Lee and I were discussing this a while back. We realized that we were handed this message. But we realized that Morris Venden and others had to scratch it out of the rubbish of behaviorism that was drowning our church. We were handed it. We are so lucky. We are so fortunate. But Morris Venden is digging this out And he's beginning to get this picture that it's about relationship, not behavior. But you know, when you're the only one headed a certain direction, you might be onto a new discovery or you may be just lost. And so he was looking for some kind of confirmation from a senior person that he felt a lot of trust in. So after a pastor's meeting, Morris Venon is hanging around the edge of the stage as HMS Richards is heading off. And when HMS Richards gets over near him, he says, Elder Richards, I'm just a young preacher, just getting started. I don't know if I've had a breakthrough in understanding or not, but I'd like to ask you a question about righteousness by faith in Christ alone. And Richards said, that's the only kind there is, son. Now do you have any other questions? (laughs) Richards had a stroke in the early 1980s. And Morris Venden went to visit him and said, I'm going to the camp meetings like you and the Voice Prophecy Quartet used to do. Do you have a word for me to the people? And Richard says, yes, tell them the old man is still reading his Bible and it still says the same thing. (laughs) And tell them if you read or hear that Elder Richards has gone to his final resting place, don't believe it. That won't be my final resting place. Don't believe it even if you read it in the review. Which, of course, is our Adventist paper. Anyway, that's Richards. So back to the interview. Elder Richards, in a few words, what is the Adventist message, and without a moment's hesitation, Richards fired back, Jesus only. Wow, that's rich. And I believe it's true. 
Due to our understanding of the Old Testament sanctuary and the grace found there, we see Jesus from beginning to the end. We don't see the Old Testament as works and law and the New Testament as grace and favor. We see it all as grace. It's always been grace. It's the everlasting gospel. I believe within the understanding we have of scriptural teaching as Seventh-day Adventists, we should see Jesus and righteousness by faith more thoroughly through all of scripture than anybody else. I believe Richards is absolutely correct. Jesus only. I like the sound of that. And yet a few years ago, Lee Venden submitted a book manuscript. The chapters were essentially several of the sermons that he preaches and that I've been preaching to you in my own way. He presented it to uh, our press, our church press, as a book manuscript. And he got a letter back from an editor that said something like this. Lee, you cannot stop at simply seeking to know Jesus better day by day. That is not enough. We still have to resist the devil by trying hard to stay out of trouble. Your message is too simple. It is not complete. Eventually, they did publish his book, by the way. But I wonder if that editor might have a misunderstanding of this verse. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We often pick that middle sentence out, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, and treat it like it stands alone. But it's in a context. The first phrase is relationship, submit to God. The second phrase is action, resist the devil. The third phrase is relationship, draw near to God. So what do we do? Do we run over and draw near to God? And then we get up our courage and we go out and we fight the devil and then we run back over here again? I believe it's a relationship sandwich. The way we resist the devil is to submit and draw near to God. Are we any match for the devil? Do we even have the capacity to resist the devil? I want you to notice the verse doesn't say resist sin. It doesn't say resist yourself. It says resist the devil. Wow. I'm not even capable of resisting the devil. I can't even see him. How am I going to fight a spirit that I can't even see? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is against the power we have no capacity to resist. We're told to battle something we can't battle. And even if we could see him, Satan comes towering, walking in the room. Are we going to say, come here, i got something for you? We're going to look like a chihuahua barking at a loaded dump truck. We're going to be backing off, knees trembling and knocking, looking for some place to run and hide. I've had a few calls in my years of ministry to go deal with someone who is battling demon possession. And let me tell you, it's scary. I don't know any pastor who says, oh, goody, let's go. We pause, we pray, we call for reinforcements. The last thing we want to do is go try to meet the devil. We're no match. We're told here to do something we can't do. We are powerless to resist the devil. I told you earlier the story of Steve Mackey, the world heavyweight kickboxing champion from 1987. My cousin Lee had the opportunity of leading to a relationship with Jesus. Shortly after Steve Mackey and his wife were baptized, it was a a Sabbath, October 31, which is Halloween. 
And on that Sabbath afternoon, Lee and Margie had uh, Steve and his wife and his son over for lunch, and they talked the afternoon away. And shortly after it got dark, after sunset, the phone rang. And Lee recognized the voice of a 33-year-old woman that he had studied with in the past. Her parents were practicing Satanists. And she, as a young adult, had tried to get free, and they had visited several times on the subject. Now she's on the phone. It's Halloween night, and she said, Pastor Venden, would you come to my house immediately right now? Satan is literally trying to kill me. No joke, physically trying to kill me. Please come now. And all of a sudden, her voice changed to a guttural growl, that said, she's mine, she belongs to me, you can't have her, don't pray for her, don't talk to Jesus about her, she's all mine, click. Lee said his knees went weak, his face went pale, the hair stood up on the back of his neck, and he turned and he noticed sitting next to him the world heavyweight kickboxing champion. And he said, Steve, how would you like to go meet the devil? Now, Steve hadn't been a Christian very long, so I'm going to have to give a vegetarian version of what he said. But he said, right on, I'd love to kick his behind. (laughs) And Lee said, Steve, we're not going to kick any behind, but I'd love to have you come and pray along with me. He said, you got it, preach. Lee said, bring your sword. He said, sword. Lee lifted up his Bible. He said, right on, let's go. So they picked up their Bibles. They drove to the house. Everything was dark. They parked in the driveway and Lee prayed, Lord, you know the kind of prayer he'd pray. I am no match for Satan. You are a match for him. You go in first. Your presence is going to have to have a bearing. We're just coming here to help this lady. Please, please protect us and throw Satan out. They walked up to the door, rang the bell. No answer. Knocked. No answer. Tried the door. It was unlocked. Pushed it open a little. There were candles burning, but no lights on. Lee figured this was an emergency. He'd better go in. So he said we opened the door and we started turning on every light we could find. (laughs) They went into a side room, and there she was, curled up in a fetal position on the floor. Lee said they nudged her and said, we're here. You called. You asked us to come pray for you. I brought a friend, another Christian, to pray. She opened her eyes and said, thank you. They helped her up. They walked in the living room. Lee said she sat on one end of the couch. He sat on the very extreme other end of the couch. And Mackie took a seat in a chair across the room. So they were kind of in a triangle And Lee said, you asked us to come and pray. That's why we're here. And immediately, a voice spoke from within her without her lips moving. She's mine, all mine. You can't have her. She belongs to me. Don't pray. Don't talk to Jesus about her. She's mine. Lee said he started to tremble, and he started to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And he looked over at the world heavyweight kickboxing champion who said, for the Bible tells me so. And Lee said, they started praying and Jesus still wins. The J team wins. Satan is no match for Jesus. They heard that growling, snarling voice cross the room and angrily go out the door. Later in the car, Lee asked, Steve, what would you think of that? And Steve said, well, when I first sat down in that chair, she looked over me and I had the uncanny feeling that someone else was looking through her eyes at me, boring a hole right through me. And suddenly a fist slammed against my chest, forced all the air out and whispered in my ear, so you think you're going to kick my behind. He said, that's when I looked over and sang, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) 
the point is, folks, it's arrogant to think we are ever going to resist the devil. So when I read that verse, submit to God, draw near to God, that's the only way I'm ever going to resist the devil is to hide in Jesus. That's the only resisting I can do is to get with Jesus and stay with Jesus. And now the context makes perfect sense. We are asked to resist a power we are powerless to resist by connecting with a greater power the devil cannot resist. We are to resist a power we are powerless to resist by connecting with a greater power the devil cannot resist. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. We have all kinds of Bible studies of people who've tried to help God out. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a numerous race like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Ten years later, they don't even have a kid. And Sarah says, I think God helps those who help themselves. I think we're overlooking something. I think God's waiting for us to act. I have a plan. I'll have a child by Hagar. We'll adopt it and we'll help God get this thing going. And the world has had trouble ever since. Jacob is told he'll inherit the birthright, even though he's the younger of the two by about a minute. Right? And then Isaac makes it clear he's planning to bless Esau. So Jacob's mother says, I think we better help God out here. And she concocts a plan. And they deceive Isaac. And Jacob gets the birthright. He also has to run for 20 years and hide, and he never sees his mother alive again. Moses is told he's going to be used to lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. You got the right guy, Lord. Graduated from the highest military schools in the world, victorious in multiple military campaigns, fluent in several languages, let's get started. He kills one Egyptian and ends up spending 40 years hiding out, herding sheep. God shows up again and says, now, Moses, about those children of Israel. And Moses says, you got the wrong guy, I can't even talk. God says, right on, now we're going to get somewhere. Uzzah, bless Uzzah's heart. He just didn't want that ark to get smashed to pieces when it fell off the trailer, the cart. And so he reaches out to touch the ark, and God kills him on the spot. The ark was only to be moved by priests and end of 20-foot poles. Us is just trying to help out. What happens when we try to help out? I'll tell you what I hope to learn on Resurrection Day. I hope to learn that Uzzah's heart was right. And Uzzah's going to come up in the first resurrection. This is my hope. And God's going to say, Uzzah, I'm sorry I had to do it to you. But if I had not reacted like that, the children of Israel would have begun treating my ark just like Dagon, whose priests had to set him up. I couldn't let it happen. So, welcome home, Uzzah. I know you meant well, but I couldn't let it go. That's my hope. When we try to help God out, it has never worked. Somewhere along the line, we came to generally agree that justification is by faith alone. Forgiveness is what God does for us. It's a free gift. We can't earn. It's all by faith. But somehow we've come to believe that sanctification... Learning to live the Christian life, obedience, victory, character perfection is something we produce with God's help. 
in order to show God how grateful we are for being forgiven. It's not trying to earn salvation because we're just letting God know how grateful we are for his justification. So we work hard on Christ-like characters. Justification is by faith alone. Sanctification is by faith plus works. We help God out a little bit. He does the rest. What if I told you you could have any car you wanted, no money down? What would your next question be? What are the monthly payments? $5,000 a month for the rest of your life. Would you be interested? And most of us accepted salvation as a free gift, no money down, but the monthly payments have been killing us. We're not able to produce the righteousness we think we're supposed to produce. And we don't realize he gives us the whole thing. It's all a gift. Sanctification isn't an expensive monthly installment. It's the monthly gift, the daily gift that God gives us of salvation. I work on relationship, and he promises to take care of my issues. Now, how's it been going for you? You've been working on overcoming more and more. You've kicked out a few bad habits. You may have actually overcome a few bad behaviors, but what about inner compulsions? What about the anger, the pride, the lust, the envy, the impatience, the unspoken profanity? Has that been solved by your attempts? No, because we can't change the heart. Jesus promises that we can be confident that if we let him begin a good work, he will do what? He will complete it. He didn't say, he who began a good work in you will help complete it. He said he will complete it. And when we try to help out, we only mess things up. Look at this verse. It is God who works in you both to what? To will. That's the 10th commandment, desire. And to do. That's behavior of his good pleasure. So it says God works in us both the heart desire and the outward conduct. Amen? Amen. Now the problem is the verse before it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We see, see, we've got to work on our salvation. It doesn't say work on your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Why? Because God has worked it in. You can't work anything out that he didn't work in. I wish Paul had reversed those verses, but he didn't. But all he, he's not telling us to work out the details of our salvation and make it happen. He's telling us to let become worked out of us what God has worked in, both in desire, heart change, and behavior. It's really the same thing that's being said in Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He starts in the mind, inside, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we let God change us on the inside, he says your life will now become living proof that my ways are good, acceptable, and perfect. It starts on the inside. We can't do anything about the inside except fix our eyes on Jesus and sit at his feet and ask him to do the transforming necessary. We want to experience life so we can enjoy life, experience life, and that others can see that life is there to be had. So what happens when people decide to trust God to do it all? Moses looks up to heaven, not to himself. He's got two million people stuck between the Egyptians and the Red Sea. 
And he holds out the rod. That rod had nothing to do with opening the sea. <laughs> that was just trust. And God opens the sea all by himself and the people are rescued. Israel walks around the walls of Jericho and they shout and the walls fall down and the people inside destroy themselves and God wins a great victory all by himself. Did they participate? Yes, but their participation had nothing to do with winning the victory. It had to do with trusting God. He said, march, they marched. He said, shout, they shouted. And it was all a complete act of ridiculosity unless God pushes the walls down. You like that word? Jonathan and his armor bearer climb a cliff in God's name. The Philistines panic. They run. They kill each other. God routes the Philistines all by himself. Now, did Jonathan and his armor bearer do something? Yes, they took God at his word. Their swords had nothing to do with winning the battle. (laughs) They just walked into it in trust in God. Same thing with David and Goliath, right? God did the victory. David just went along for the ride. Hezekiah prays in the temple, puts that letter out from the Assyrian king that you guys are toast and your God is worthless. And what happens? came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I quoted that in the King James just because I like the way it says it. They all woke up dead. And God did it all by himself. All Hezekiah did was proclaim his trust and God routed the enemy. Gideon makes a joyful noise. 300 broken pitchers and trumpets and the Midianites kill themselves to the last man. I don't know how the last one went down when there wasn't anyone left, but it was to the last man. And God did it all by himself. Notice in every one of these cases, did human beings participate? Yes, but not in a way that had anything to do with the victory. They simply trusted and God acted. And finally, Jehoshaphat. He's attacked by a triple alliance of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. The three nations God would not let Israel destroy when they entered the promised land because they were cousins. Now, those three cousins have gotten together and formed an overwhelming triple alliance that's about to wipe the kingdom of Judah off the map. Jehoshaphat calls an all-city prayer meeting. And they come before God. And in the middle of the prayer meeting, a prophet none of us have ever heard of before, we never hear of again. Some guy in the audience said, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude. The battle is not yours, but God's tomorrow. Go down against them. See, we participate. You will not need to fight in this battle. Go, but don't fight. That's interesting. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. If you're going to stand close enough to see the battle, you're close enough to get attacked. So what do they do? How do we go out to war without going out to war? Practical question. Their answer? We'll send the choir out. So they sent the choir in front of the army. Now, would you want to be a soprano in that choir? No, I'd want to at least be a bass. I want to be in the back row. It took a lot of faith to walk out to where the battle was. And yet, they acted on faith, but they had nothing to do with winning the battle. 
Jesus is enough if we trust him. In fact, how much is Jesus? But to him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us what? Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification or holiness and redemption, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Do we glory in the Lord because it's, you know, 90% God, 10% us, but we just, you know, give him the whole credit anyway? No, we glory in the Lord because it's all him. Notice, he is our wisdom. Without him giving us some wisdom, we wouldn't even know we needed to be saved or how. He is our justification, forgiveness. It's all him. He is our sanctification. It doesn't say he's part of our sanctification or 90% of our sanctification. Sanctification is not a combination of divine power and human effort. It's him. He is our sanctification, holiness, character, perfection. And he is our redemption. You know good and well when it comes to finally getting there, we're just going to go along for the ride. We're not going to have any part in it except to be transported by him. Outcome guaranteed. Let him who glory glories in the Lord because it's all the Lord. Jesus is enough. He's the whole package. If Jesus is the whole package, then what is my part? To get with the package, stay with the package, day by day to seek him. And he says he will take me wherever he needs me to go if I will take him at his word. The one thing God will not and cannot do for us, he will not and cannot seek himself in relationship for us. That would be fake relationship. That would be like hugging and kissing yourself. It's just not very satisfying. (laughs) Relationships are bilateral. Jesus cannot seek himself for us. And so that's what he asks us to do. Some people are afraid that simply looking to Jesus won't be enough. They're worried we need to help God out a bit. If the eye is fixed on Christ, the work of the Spirit ceases not until the soul is conformed to his image. What do we do? Keep the eye fixed on Christ. What does the Spirit do? Conform us to his image. Sanctification is by faith alone. Jesus is enough. We focus on Jesus. The Spirit does a work in us. Our part is to keep our eyes on Jesus. The Spirit's part is is to transform us into his image. A pastor friend was pastoring a small church out in the rural plains of the Midwest. And he was just beginning his sermon one day when a young couple walked in the back door. And the thing that he noticed immediately is that it did not look like they had had going to church in mind when they got dressed that morning. And there was the heavy fragrance of tobacco. This pastor preached on Jesus, and after the service, the man, kind of a hippie-looking guy, long hair, big beard, had tears in his eyes as he went out the door, and he said, Pastor, would you come to my house and teach my wife and I how to know Jesus for ourselves? That pastor decided he was going to do exactly what that man asked for. The man didn't ask to know about Bible doctrine. He didn't ask for proof texts and prophecy. He asked how to know Jesus. So the pastor went out. And he said, we just started reading the Gospel of John together, getting to know Jesus. He said, I sat there at the dining room table, one on one side, one on the other. There was always a lit cigarette. He said, I think I smoked a pack and a half per Bible study. Secondhand smoke. He just opened the Gospel. And the funniest thing started to happen. 
These people kept coming to church. Their appearance began to change, even though they never talked about dress and jewelry. They began to tithe, even though no one ever gave them a Bible study on tithing. They evidently read something, and God convicted, and they began to tithe. After a while, they began to keep the Sabbath, even though they never had a Bible study on the Sabbath. They were dry land farmers, depending on irrigation. And I don't know if you have that around here, but when the irrigation comes, you better take it or it won't come for a few more days. It rotates around. And so it might come at 2 o'clock in the morning. You better be out to get it. It might come on Friday night or Sabbath. You better be out to get it or your crops will die. And the man finally witnessing to this said, you know, one day I was driving my tractor along and I stopped and knelt down in the dirt and finally said, Lord Jesus, from this day on, I'll not be taking the water on Sabbath. I'm going to trust that you will take care of my farm. I'm going to spend the Sabbath with you. And the man had never even had a sermon on the Sabbath or a Bible study. Eventually, the pastor noticed they'd quit smoking. Now he said, I began to get suspicious. And he finally asked, have some well-meaning members of the church been telling you the shoulds and shouldn'ts of the club? Have some of the folks down at the church been talking to you about things? And the lady said, like what? And the pastor says, oh, never mind. She said, what? So he started going through it, you know, appearance, Sabbath, no, no one. We just, God convicted us of that. Finally, he said, she said, what else? He said, well, what about smoking? Has anyone at the Adventist church told you we don't approve of smoking? And this pastor said, this woman looked at her husband and she said to him, when is the last time you had a cigarette? And he said, I don't remember. When is the last time you had a smoke? She said, I don't have a clue. And then that woman said, we didn't even realize we'd quit smoking. I guess Jesus just took the desire away. Is Jesus enough? Are you troubled or confused? Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Are you tense? He's the prince of peace. Are you uncertain? He's the cornerstone and the solid rock. Are you feeling let down? He is faithful to lift you up. Are you lonely? He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Are you defenseless? He's our advocate. Are you in the dark? He's the light. Are you surrounded by difficulties? He is the deliverer. Are you sinful? He's our righteousness. Are you helpless? He's our savior. Are you bereaved? He's the resurrection and the life. Are you hungry? He's the bread of life. Are you thirsty? He's the day spring and the living water. Are you searching? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega. He's the creator of all and the keeper of creation. He's the architect of the universe, the manager of time. He always was, he always is, he always will be, unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, but never undone. He is light, he is love, he is longevity, he is Lord. He is goodness, he is gentleness, he is grace, he is guide, he is God. He is holy, he is righteous, he is mighty, he is powerful, he is pure. He is savior, he is sanctifier, he is redeemer. He is friend, he is peace, he is joy, he is comfort, he is hope. He is eternal, he is the ancient of days, he's the ruler of rulers, he's the king of kings. The world can't understand him, armies can't defeat him, schools can't explain him, and leaders can't ignore him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him, Herod couldn't kill him, Nero couldn't crush him, Hitler couldn't silence him, and the new age will not replace him. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will never forget you, he will never mislead you, and he will never overlook you. 
When you fall, he'll lift you up. When you fail, he'll forgive. When you're weak, he is strong. When you're lost, he's the way. When you're afraid, he is courage. When you stumble, he's steady. When you're hurt, he heals. When you're broken, he mends. When you're blind, he leads. When you're hungry, he feeds. When you face persecution, he'll shield you. When you face problems, he'll comfort you. When you face loss, he'll provide for you. When you face death, he will hold you. He is the resurrection. He holds the keys of the grave. He is everything to everyone, every time, everywhere, every way. He is God. He is faithful. And I would like to submit that Jesus is enough. With a pedigree like that, go figure. He wants to be your friend. It looks like he's more eager to be friends with us than we are to be friends with him. You'd think we'd be beating down heaven's gate to respond to that invitation, but we're so busy chasing stuff that rusts and burns that we don't have time. He came from heaven to rescue us and give us a chance to get off this planet alive. He numbers the hairs of your head, not because he doesn't have anything better to do, but that's how interested he is in you and me. That's how concerned he is. He cares totally. What is the Adventist message? Jesus only. He is truly enough. That's why Paul said, I count all things as lost that I may know him. And all Jesus is saying is, can we be friends? Come on. Let's hang out. Watch what I can do for you. I'm so eager for us to become the best of friends. So we end where we started. Can we be friends? And with that friendship comes everything. Forgiveness, the assurance of salvation, holiness, reality of transformation, eternity where abiders today will keep right on abiding with Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, it's been a good journey. And I pray that above all, we will recognize that you are enough. Whatever we need, whether we just need to be saved, whether we need transformation, whether we need victory over sinful habits, you are enough, Jesus. If we sit at your feet, if we keep our eyes fixed on the uplifted Savior, you promise that you have got everything else under control. Jesus, may we be dedicated to start each day sitting at your feet, becoming better friends, trusting that when we have Jesus, we truly have eternal life, that when we have Jesus, we have everything, because you, Jesus, are enough. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.